flip through the pages and think about those experiences, those times together, those remembrances. We begin here because the Gospel of John has that kind of a component to it. As we flip through the pages of John, we realize that these are snapshots of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We realize that these are instances that God has chosen to display His divinity to us. John the Apostle is the human secretary of the Gospel, and he presents the divinity of Christ in all of its glory. Um, You'll notice as well that John is often referred to in the Gospels as the Apostle that Jesus loves. This speaks to us of a kind of closeness and intimacy, which is interesting because John has at times earlier in his life been something of a tough guy. If you know the story of he and his, his brother James, you know that they had something of a reputation for being sons of thunder. The word is Bonergues, tough guys. And when Jesus is teaching in one village and they won't hear him, they want to stop Jesus and say, hey, you think we should call down fire on this place? So these guys are tough guys. And yet, God has been shaping and breaking and making this man and softening his heart. He becomes a great spokesman for Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior. You'll notice in the book of John that it is a simple gospel. Children can understand it. The, the, the simplest of us, those that don't like three and four and five syllable words, we can go to the gospel of John and appreciate it. There's an expression that's been used for years about John. It's called a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant may swim. So it is both deep and wide. Wide in the sense that everyone can understand it, but it's also gloriously profound. If you are a theologian of the nth degree or a philosopher or a thinker or an academic, you will find in the Gospel of John much grist for the middle of your mind. Love John because the gospel puts the cookies on the lower shelf. This is a gospel that helps us. Those who, who don't like things very, very complicated can come to John and get what we need. Here in the gospel of John is the reason that we affirm from our childhood on Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Even the Greek that is employed in conveying this message. It is simple. It is unvarnished. It's, there's few technical words to it. There's kind of a universal accessibility to the Gospel of John. And so it should serve those of us gathering in this place at this time well. Well, let me try to keep the front porch smaller so that we can actually get into the house, but I feel compelled to share with you a little bit of background information. The first 18 verses of John 1 are commonly referred to as a prologue which is kind of interesting because it's the words before the words. So what's happening here is that John is explaining what he's going to explain to us. He's going to tell us what he's going to tell us. You, you, you see here that he's, he's setting out this drama that is going to unfold as he opens up the photo album of God and he shows us scene after scene what it is that he's going to describe for us. The preface or the introduction is made before this dramatic presentation. If you're looking for an overarching theme, you need only go to the latter part of the book in John chapter 20 and read a couple of verses, and I think you've got the warp and woof of 
verses 30 and 31. So if you're wondering about theme for where we're going and what hopefully we'll see from our study in the Gospel of John, notice with me verse 30 of John chapter 20. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which were not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So this has an evangelistic component to it. You don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, then hopefully you'll come and read and hear and think and ponder and be amazed and come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And if not, if you're a believer walking and talking and you're a follower of Christ, that you might be freshly amazed at what is laid out before us in the Gospel of John. So it's written both for Christians and for non-Christians, for Christians to keep on believing and resting and trusting and hoping for non-believers to understand the massive claims that Jesus Christ made. He's not saying that he's a good guy, he's a revolutionary, that he's somebody to be followed and emulated. He's saying that he's the rescue of our eternal souls. That Jesus stands at the crossroads between heaven and hell, and without him there is no hope of eternal rescue. Well, some final distinctions. John deals primarily with the three years of Christ's ministry on earth. It differs from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the sense that there is no birth record, there is no baptism, there is no temptation account, there are no parables, no exorcisms, no last supper, no Gethsemane, or ascension. In the Gospel of John, we have a unique perspective of Jesus Christ as God. If in Luke he is the Son of Man, and in Mark he is the servant, and in Matthew he is the King, then in coming to the Gospel of John, we're coming to see Jesus as God, as God wrapped in flesh. So let me give you three final thoughts about the distinctives of the Gospel of John. John's Gospel is ablaze with the glory of God. I kind of felt this past week at times that I should maybe take off my sandals because I feel as though I'm standing on holy ground. This has got that sense in which God is telling us about himself, and it's intimate, and it's personal, and it's weighty, and we're right to feel the weight of that. The presentation of Jesus Christ as truly man and truly God is rightly humbling, and we are right to feel small in comparison to the Gospel of John. Secondly, John's Gospel argues for a verdict. It demands a decision. If you can go away from John and say, it's no big deal, then I worry for the sake of your soul. John argues that Jesus is the fort in the road. And you decide, you, you understand that he must open your eyes and that you might, you might decide that he is in fact the living God. That there, are, there are scenes in the gospel that demand that we think seriously about what is unfolding in this record of God. He turns water into wine. He meets Nicodemus in the evening. He converts the woman at the well. He restores Peter. He dies horrifically and rises majestically. You cannot look away unmoved, I hope, as you come to the text. Why? Because our souls are on the line. Thirdly, this. John's gospel is designed for our blessing. John's gospel, where we're going, where we'll be, is designed for our blessing. Our minds are fed, our hearts are nourished, our fears are relieved. Do you have any fears today? Do you have any fears?
fears going on about this month or this week or this year. Oh, how John's gospel helps us to see a big and lofty and great and mighty and majestic God. An accurate view of God is essential to our blessing as followers of Christ. We miss him, but ultimately we miss light and life. God's word says no one comes to the Father except by him or through him. And so in coming to John, we're coming to grips with who Jesus Christ is. Thinking again of this sign of the pulpit, sir, we would see Jesus. That's what we're doing, and that's where we're going. So let's begin at the very beginning, a very good place to start in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The first thing that I think we can say as we begin this prologue is, the, is that He was the Lord before the beginning. Jesus Christ is the Lord before the beginning. These first verses are some of the most weighty and profound that you find in Scripture. It's almost poetic in its expression. Here is God revealing God to us. This is self-revelation in its highest form. This is the great I am speaking. And I recognize this tell you right away, saying, man, I don't know about this study. Great I am, self-revelation. Well, this is God telling us specifically things about himself. And the reality is, is that there's a part of us that says, I don't get it. I'm not sure that I fully understand that. I can't come to grips with that. And dear friends, that's a good thing. Because he's God. Because he's big and mighty and majestic. John 1.1 connects us to Genesis 1.1. The gospel is telling the story of the ages, and it is expansive. The Gospel of John introduces us to the Lord Jesus Christ with these three tremendous statements. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we have this concept of the Word, which is one of the highest and the most profound titles of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a broadness, however, to this term. Now, obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ is more than the Logos of Greek philosophy. In fact, he's the nombre of the Hebrew text. The Lord Jesus Christ, it says in the text, is the true being. He is the one who says. This is more distinctive than any other. He is above and he is beyond. And right away, we're confronted with this idea that there are people who don't understand who Jesus is. Right away, we're confronted with those who view Christ wrongly or erroneously. For those who have a Muslim background, or those of a Jehovah's Witness background, or those who deal with ancient Arianism or something like that, right away you're confronted with this truth and this reality about who Jesus is. Ancient Arians of the 4th century said, Jesus was not God, was not eternal, was not eternally begotten, but rather that Jesus was created, or that he was the first of creation, the highest of the high angels. Their common expression was, there was what he was not. What they said essentially is that Jesus Christ has a beginning. And this text says, no, there was never a time when he was not. That he was in fact very God. You say, who's struggling with that? Lots of people are struggling with that. They, they see him as a prophet. They see him as a political figure. They see him as a congenital spirit. They see him as an analogy and an illustration to live by. They see him as the meek and lowly one. But the struggle is to see Jesus Christ as Lord and Master and ruling 
and sovereign majesty over all things. And that's what John does. The precision of verse 3 makes their view impossible. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Everything that was made was made through him, by him. This is not good grammar, but I think it helps. Jesus always was, was he? Let me see how you're looking at me. Jesus always was, was he? That's what we're talking about. And if you're finding yourself scratching your head, that's a good thing. Because he always was and is and ever shall be. All things were made through him. But not just that he's a creature. He creates creatures. All things in, doesn't include himself. Because the latter part of verse 3b, and without him nothing was made that was made. This makes the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ emphatic. Anything that is in the category of made, Christ made it. Before you exist, you cannot bring yourself into being. Christ was not made. And then in verse 4, he begins to turn the corner from the work of the Word in creation to his work in salvation. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the life of man. Oh, and now we're recognizing not just that he was master of creation, but that he is master of salvation. If you want life, if you want light, you find it in the Lord Jesus Christ. We look for love in all the wrong places, we look for light in all the wrong places, and we look for life in all the wrong places. That's why you hear Jesus say, Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That abundant life is found in Jesus Christ. We live in a culture with a certain element of darkness in which only the light of Jesus can overcome. He must pierce our darkness as the light of man. Shakespeare famously captures Macbeth's philosophy of life, saying, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, end quote. And that's life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friends, that's the tragically empty life that King Jesus came to rescue us from. And even the ongoing death of an eternal separation in a place called hell, we must have life and life in Jesus Christ. May the Lord God help us to see His glory and to worship Him as He alone deserves. You understand, folks? Someone like us can't save us. Someone like me can't save me from myself. You understand, from the Gospel of John, the great gulf that is fixed between us, we recognizing that He's bridged that gap. We find ourselves rightly exalted. We find ourselves rightly admiring King Jesus. And so we recognize first in this prologue that the Lord was the Lord from before the beginning. There's a shift in verses 6 and 8, because in verses 6 to 8, we discover that there is the messenger of the Lord. Very interesting that he would be used here in this way. But you'll notice in verse 6 it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And John's not talking about John. He's not talking about himself. He's talking rather here about John the Baptist. And if you want to 
say, this man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And so in verses 6 to 8, we're introduced to John the Baptist as a witness to the light sent by God. John the Baptist, if you haven't studied his life, is a fascinating character. I mean, he's fascinating in terms of his clothing and his meals, camel hair garments, locusts and honey, really. I mean, this is an interesting guy. This is the kind of rough, prophetic, potent, powerful heralds that you would expect the king to have. Now, not like a human king, but certainly one who is uniquely different, other, and separate. And so we see that God has chosen to use John the Baptist, and that what this does is it locates John's ministry in the larger framework of God's eternal plans. God has chosen to use a messenger and herald like John the Baptist. What do we come to understand from that? Well, that he's working from a set of blueprints. That God has a very distinctive agenda. He's not making things up that there's this glorious form and order that he operates from. It's amazing to think about John the Baptist's ministry, which is prophesied in the Old Testament. In other words, it's linking together the ministry of Jesus Christ, the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah, and this one that would come before him. He comes to bear witness to the light. We understand that God is careful to distinguish John the Baptist's ministry from the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's amazing to think about God using John the Baptist in the way that he did. God has come crying out that king was coming. Make the low places high. Make the crooked places straight. Make the high places low so that the king can come. It's a ministry of preparation. And of course, it's amazing to think about folks leaving the cities and the towns and coming out here this wild man who's roaring and raging in the wilderness about sin and calling people to repentance and preparation for the coming king. God certainly could have used another messenger, another time, another way. Think about it. He could have used angels. He could have written letters in the sky. There could have been audible voices that were used. There could have been some type of massive billboard ministry or something like that. But God has chosen in his sovereignty to use human beings as messengers. And while we're not inaugurating the ministry of Jesus Christ in the way that John the Baptist did, we all have a role to play in terms of testifying of this coming king. While we did not maybe begin in that way, and sometimes we feel as though we're smoldering wicks and barely barely burning, barely making light, the call of God upon our lives is precise. So John the Baptist is the messenger of the Lord in verses 6 to 8. That brings us finally into verses 9 and 10 and into 11. You notice the mission of the Lord. The mission of the Lord in these verses. Every great story has tension. Every great story has an element or an underside of trouble. And you'll notice it with me in verses 9 and following. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. When you got this soft underbelly. Here we've got this darkening shadow, but the mission that the light of the world is on is a mission that has negative components to it. 
every great story has a certain seriousness to it. Here in verse 10 is an ugly footnote. He was in the world, the world that he made, and the world did not know him. The world did not want to know him. We recognize that a double-minded man, according to the book of James, is unstable in all his ways. And certainly that's the truth that surfaces in verse 10, where there are people who don't want to know him. They don't want him to be in charge. They don't want him to come. They, they don't want to be under his control. They don't want his laws and his rules and his regulations, or they would lead to the blessing and flourishing. And so there is this mission that Christ has come on, but there are those who don't want to know him. And right away we realize that this locates itself perfectly within the framework of our culture. There are people who don't want to know the light. I remember, and I've shared it with you before, but I remember when my older sister, Trish, came outside calling us in from a, an evening of play out in the neighborhood. Man, you don't want to hear that message. So when she came and said, Mom, Dad, I hand over my ears. I'm not listening. I can't hear you. And so it is. There are people who don't want to hear what it is that God is saying. They don't recognize that, the, that His way is the highway. That only his words lead to light and life and flourishing. The creation has failed to acknowledge its creator. The world refuses to recognize its ruler. Spiritual blindness obscures humanity's view of Jesus Christ. Stepping across the line, he came to his own, verse 11 says, and his own did not receive him. Even his own nation, the Jews, failed to receive their promised Messiah and joined in with the reprobate, the pagan, and so on. The idea that we are all under the condemnation of not wanting to hear what it is that God is saying. And so here at the very beginning is this dramatic undertow of humanity. The light comes into the world, the life comes into the world. He was always was him. He's creator, he's king, he's God, he's the great I am. And then we, we, we recognize right at the beginning of the story there are those that don't want, won't listen, don't care, refuse to hear, refuse to see. The reality is that the Gospel of John calls us to an ongoing perception of and affection for Jesus Christ. If your relationship with Jesus Christ was a one-time decisional situation where maybe you got weepy or you felt strangely warm to the things of God, or you sort of believed, then I have news for you. John is informing us that in order for us to appreciate fully God, we appreciate Him fully throughout every season of our life. If you do not treasure Jesus Christ, I don't believe you're a follower of Jesus Christ. This is a matter of lifelong delight in who he is. So let me close with a couple of practical truths just as we've done the prologue of the Gospel of John. First of all, this the Christian life is not about getting things from God, it's about getting God. You see the distinction? This is not about us coming and feeling strangely warmed and wanting things and wanting him to bless and give us good things. This is rather about us getting him. Delighting in Him, finding our joy in Him, recognizing an eternality together with Him. We need a God who demands that light shines in the darkness. We need a God who is capable of bringing order.
why Paul says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Knowing the majesty of Jesus Christ means this very practically. It means that disease and death, financial deficits, work issues, family tensions, church dust ups, ministry shortcomings, political wrangling, the price of gas, and stock market anxieties must all bow before him. That was a mouthful, I know. But you, I hope you get the point. When you see and savor the coming king, when you have a recollection that God came, wrapped himself in flesh, took upon himself this form of a servant to be our Messiah, the anointed one and rescuer that was preordained in eternity past in the, in the pre, in the, in the, in the inner Trinitarian Council of Godhead, which is big stuff, you fall down amazed by that. And he's determined to set his affection on us. That, that he is on a rescue mission to save us. I was thinking about Spurgeon's interesting illustration that he shared at one point. He talked about he talked about someone being in the ring in the Coliseum. They were about to unleash the lions. They're about to unleash the beast that surely would have t- torn this person limb for limb. He says that as you wait in anticipation, in great fear and terror, you feel a strong hand grab you and lift you over the wall, which sits you down in a place of safety, and then charge the champion charges over into the into the field and takes on the beasts for you. Interesting perspective. That we have in Jesus Christ a champion who fights for us, who dies for us, who lives again for us. The Christian life is not merely about getting things from God. It's about getting God. The Gospel of John has the ability to reset the broken bones Two of us are far too amazed with the storms that we face, and not with the one who stills the storms. We're we're amazed at how much trouble we are confronted with. Not amazed with who he is. Secondly, and finally, the Christian life anticipates an ongoing amazement with the personal work of Christ. When we see and what we see in John's gospel is a broadness and a bigness that makes Jesus Christ irresistibly praiseworthy. Let me just give you the scope of this. His glory is more amazing because it is mingled with humility. His transcendence is blended with condescension, means he comes down low for us. His perfect, stealing justice is set against the velvet of his mercy. We understand grace and truth bound up together, kissing itself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His majestic is made more majestic because of his meekness. He robes himself in servants' guards, even though he is the king of the world. He is wiser than any academic or philosopher. He silences his critics. They dare not speak anymore. But he also loves to minister simply to children. Tell us his disciples who are putting up a wall or a fence. He says, Let him come. He's able to still the storm of Galilee, but he refuses to remove himself from the agony of the cross. Do you not see in Jesus someone so vast, so big, 
so marvelous, so admirable, that we're rightly humbled before him. We could go on and on with the list, but we won't. But John's gospel is going to tell us scene after scene, story after story, how great this God is. In fact, John's gospel closes with words similar to this, and I'm paraphrasing, but John says this, if I wrote them everything about Jesus that Jesus did, it would fill up the world. It's a glorious thought. Dear friends, some of us this morning are admiring the wrong things. Our idle hearts are stuck on silly, junky trinkets. We're playing marbles with diamonds, and so I'm praying, I'm pleading that in coming to the Gospel of John that we behold his glory and that it changes us. That God deals with the idol factory that is inside of my heart and inside of your heart, and that God lifts us to see who he is. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a certain conversation between Aslan, the representative of Christ, and Lucy. He says, welcome, child. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. Aslan says, that's because you're older, little one. Not because you are, Lucy says. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That's part of the desire of my heart in coming to the Gospel of John, that every year as I grow, and every year as you grow, some of you are getting nervous because you're saying, you're talking years here in the Gospel of John, over. every year we grow, that we will find him bigger. Father God, thank you for our time together. We see that often... Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and things of this earth will go strangely beyond the light of your glory and grace. Father, I pray that that might be our prayer as we start this journey together. I pray that we might see you high and lifted up. I pray that you prepare our hearts for, Lord, this, um, uh, this time together. I pray, Lord God, even as we come to the table as a family, meeting in this place on this day, Father, we'd be rightly disturbed, rightly moved, rightly, Lord, um, understanding of how pure and holy and sinless you are and how mean we are. Father, I pray that you would move in the hearts of your people, grow us up in Jesus Christ, and we ask all of this in the strong name of Christ our Savior.